0: ...of this morning's sermon is Paths of Righteousness. And we've been working our way, as you know, through Psalm 23. I can't even, I'm not even sure if this is the fourth or or so message. There might have been one more. I don't have a mental list of it, I guess, right now at my fingertips. But we've been working through Psalm 23. And anyone who's been here in those last four weeks or so, you know that the impetus for that was that we taught through the entirety of Psalm 23 as the theme for our summer Bible camps. And so in doing that, it led me to want to do it as a series for everyone here in the church. So we've been slowly working our way one clause at a time through this psalm. So we have the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want was our first lesson. Then he makes me to lie down in green pastures was our second. He leads me beside the still waters was our third. And he restores my soul was the fourth. So... Having counted them off, this will be our fifth lesson then here in Psalm 23. Today we're going to tackle, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then to read out the rest of this psalm so that we have it fresh in our mind. We have, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we see that the focal point of this psalm was in. The first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we broke that down to have a meaning more akin to, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And so that's the thrust of this psalm. If you were to just learn one verse from these six, that should be it. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And, you know, very often we're going through life seeking for the next bauble, the next thing, the next flashy lights that are going to somehow make us happy and complete us. And the fact of the matter is, as God's child, you already lack nothing. Paul speaks in a similar fashion throughout the New Testament, this idea that I can find contentment because I'm convinced that God has and will provide everything that I need And that he won't miss the mark in any way. That he won't fall short in any way. That it's not just some of the things I need that he'll provide, but it's all of the things that I need and all of the time. Such that I could have this confidence that because I'm God's child and because he so desperately cares for me and because he's so infinitely great and perfect, he'll never miss out on anything. He'll never forget to provide something that I need because his love for me is that intense and because he loves me that desperately. And so that's ultimately the theme of this psalm. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have that intimacy of relationship, this familial relationship with him, and he has this deep love, concern, care, and compassion for me. I lack nothing. Because whatever it is I need, we're speaking of the spiritual sense primarily, although we touched on how that can involve meeting our physical needs too, our emotional needs, our financial needs, our relational needs that God can undertake to work in those facets of life as well but the focus of course being our spiritual well-being and so that was the thrust of this and then we've sort of brought out and I'll say it again here this morning that then the rest of the psalm acts as more elaborate details about what exactly God's complete care for his children looks like. What is it comprised of? What are some more specifics? So if that's the general statement, then what are some more of the specifics? And so we've been working through what does that perfect, complete care of the Lord entail? And so we already have looked at a few of the ones we've covered already, but he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And so we'll pick up here this morning with he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now I'm not going to repeat myself too much Lord willing about some of the things that have become a pattern in this psalm. You're going to have to go back to the online messages to to hear some of the further discussion about what we're talking about when we're looking at even this word he. So if he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, who are we talking about? Of course, we're talking about the Lord all the way back from verse one. So from verse one, we have the Lord and we noted that that's God's personal name that's used there, Yahweh, that the Lord is my shepherd. And then every time we say he, you could just write in there the Lord. Yahweh, God makes me. To lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now are you picking up a theme there? Are you seeing where the focus is for the provision? Who's doing the providing? And it's just going to become more and more clear as we keep working through this psalm and why. I think part of the reason why that type of language is used is one, it's poetic, but two, so that we'll get it. You know, it's like so many things that we've been told more than one time. Why do we need to be told things more than once? Well, Because we don't get it the first time. I'm getting to a point in my life where I can't remember it the first time. And for those of you who are worried for me, you should be. Keep praying. Keep praying for me. I had another mountain biking fall two Sundays ago. And I actually have a fractured elbow right now. So when you say, see somebody continue to do the same things with the same outcomes, <laughs> be very worried, be very worried. No, actually, in all, in all reality, pray for me. There's so many things that uh, are dangerous in, in life and that's just a physical danger. Then we speak about the things that are dangerous to me in a spiritual sense. I hope you're praying for me. Uh, the reality is that we're all facing The adversary we're all under attack from the one within and the one without all of the time and the reality is there's none of us who don't need each other to be praying for one another that is a big part of the defense the Lord has provided with us with a number of defensive weapons against the adversaries the world the flesh and the devil but one of the key components in that is prayer so in any event He is in reference to God, and it's a a focus being put on him to do the providing, to remind us, you're not the one providing, Goofy. Hey, silly, you're not the one providing. Son, I'm the one who provides. Child, I'm the one who provides. It's not you who does the providing. It's because I'm your shepherd that you don't lack anything. Can you get that through your head? Can you be reminded of that? And think of all the different ways we're trying to figure life out. Now, I'll tell you what, there's some very practical times where you have to use the brain that God gave you to try to undertake to make wise choices. Hopefully, they're prayerful choices, but decisions and choices regarding the physical realm that have to do with providing for clothing or food or those things. But even though you're a part of it, and it may involve hard work, it usually involves hard work. It may involve planning. It might might involve trying to... I say do a plan in pencil knowing that things very seldom work out the way you you thought they would. But even while you're doing that, yes, God wants us to be good stewards and to have that insight and that foresight as we, we go through life. But when that starts to take the place of an underlying recognition that it's ultimately him who's doing the providing, then we've gotten the balance out of focus. Now when it comes to spiritual life, it's... Especially important to remember that God is the one that's going to allow us to thrive and provide for our spiritual needs. Now, as he does that, he gives us various things that would benefit us or assist us or instructions that would help us to follow in that way that he wants us to go. And that's ultimately what this part is going to be about here this morning. So he, that's just an ongoing reference to the Lord. And that's, I guess, all I'm going to say about that. But he leads... So this is our action here for today. He leads me. So the object of the action is going to be me again, just like he restores my soul. He leads me in the still waters. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. It's this intimate idea of this relationship between God and an individual man of faith, in this case, a Psalm of David. And so as we're looking at leads, that's our primary thought. That's our primary action for today. So leads is defined as to escort, to guide, or to take somewhere. Now leading involves going in front of the sheep. And I think that's something that's interesting as we look at emulating God's ways as he seeks to use us in the lives of others. And so he's entrusted us with people to lead at times. Sometimes they're your children. Sometimes it's to be a leader in a home. Sometimes it's to be a leader in some type of a human organization or group or something like that but one of the things that we ought to see is that God is the perfect example of how to do anything and so if he's leading he's leading by going in front of us and directing us by giving us his example and he did that through the sacrifice of his son as he provided us the ultimate example for living life and the mentality or attitude or mindset that should go along with that but you don't lead people by pushing them from behind. And you think about that with those that God has asked you to lead in your own life. With your children, the most effective way to lead them is to be to is to go in front of them and to lead by example. To stand behind your children and try to push them forward without any regard for your own example to them is not a, an effective way to lead. It's not an effective way to parent. And the same is true with almost anything. If you're in a position of leadership, then the first focus of that is to lead by example. And as you're leading, the idea, Paul says, is to imitate me as I imitate Christ. The idea in any of us is, can we be more Christ-like as we let God's Spirit work in and through us? As God's Spirit works in and through us, he transforms us so that we become conformed over time into the image of his Son. So what's more and more true of us as we progress in our lives, if we learn to trust him more and more over time to a greater and greater extent, is that we become more and more like him. Not because of anything that we've done to polish up the outside of our lives. I mean, the reality is if you think that's going to occur through you just scrubbing away and working real hard at getting some of the grime off of yourself... The reality is you'll never be successful. It's not you that's doing the polishing. It's God that's doing the refining as he tries to keep heating you up, applying the heat to you. Who's having some heat applied to them right now? <laughs> that's God doing that usually. Uh, sometimes what we think is heat is actually just the consequences of our own choices, but that's a whole other. thing. That's a whole other thing. God is in the, in the, he's interested in allowing trials and difficulties and circumstances in our lives that will produce some heat and discomfort. For what purpose? Because as you subject something to heat and it melts, especially something that's precious and we're precious to him, So if we're precious to him more precious than gold and if we're more precious than gold to him he looks at us like gold and the example would be as as he heats up that gold that is the substance of our existence as he heats that up and subjects it to high heat is the heat pleasant? Boy, you guys need more sleep. (laughs) No, it's not. Not pleasant. But it's for your good. So as he heats you up As he allows that heat in your life, those fires in your life, what's the ultimate objective? That the skilled goldsmith would come along and he would skim off the impurities that now come to the surface. Are there some impurities left in you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Until you're glorified, there always will be. That old sin nature is not going anywhere. There's victory available every moment of every day. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You've been made alive. You've been given the opportunity to live a life of godliness if you'll allow him to direct, if you keep your eyes on him, if you allow his power to work from within you. But that's not guaranteed. That's choices that have to be made every moment of every day. Now when we don't, the reality is that what rears its ugly head? The impurities that are left in us, right? And are they pleasant? No. Are they attractive? Nope, just ask your kids. Ask your spouse. Don't do it now, but I mean later. Ask your mom if those qualities in you are attractive. They're not. Now, I will remind you that some of those qualities come come across as self-righteousness. Some of those qualities come out as doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. And so in that sense, they're a little bit attractive to the person who doesn't see the heart. Because they're fake and they're phony, there's absolutely no value in them, as the flesh can produce human good too, but that human good is just as useless as the human bad, and that's probably not the right way to say that. God's not any more pleased with that than he is with the outright overt sin, and so be careful with that too. But God is trying to guide, he's trying to escort, he's trying to lead or take his sheep somewhere. Now, in this case, we've seen this twice now. He leads beside the still waters. He brings me to the place where I can be refreshed, but now it's somewhere different that he's leading. And it it's involves leading, again, from being in front. I hope that as you're thinking about examples of that, how God gives examples of leading from in front, the one that came to my mind this time is how God led the nation of Israel. Now, how did he do that? He went before them. He told them over and over, I will go in front. I will go before you. I don't need you to go in front. I don't, I don't need you to break the path. I need you to follow. How many of you have been snowshoeing before? Okay, a few hands. All right. The rest of you should try it. I make some snowshoe trails here around the church every winter and Sometimes the drifts get real deep. If anyone who's been snowshoeing, you know that the drifts can get so deep that even having snowshoes on, you end up basically post-holing, we'll call it, but where each step puts you about up to your waist or your crotch in the snow. Now when that foot is all the way up to, I'll try to picture this for you, but you're all the way up to here, okay, but this foot is still stuck all the way up to here too, so now this leg has to come up, out of the snow and has to push down again. Now where's this leg? All the way down in the snow, right? Some of you have been there before? That can be tough, right? It can be real challenging and the older you get, bad news, the harder that gets. But you know what? If you happen to be the second person in that line, it's much easier, isn't it? How about if you happen to be the third or fourth person in that line as the trail gets broken by others? And I've done that before with my kids and they've said, Dad, why are you going so slow? <laughs> now, two things. They don't, they don't weigh what I weigh. So they could walk right across the top of it anyway. Two, they're not breaking the trail. They're like, this isn't hard at all. I'll tell you what, there's a real spiritual principle there. When we're following him and he's making the way, it's not hard. Christianity is not supposed to be hard. We make it hard because we refuse to follow him. We want to do it our own way. I do it. I do it like little toddlers. And God says, no, you can't make the right way. You won't, you won't be able to do this well. You need to follow me, and that will be a life that is maybe not physically easy, but it's going to be spiritually easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I found it so. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so as I taste and see that the Lord is good, I see that this is a life of refreshment, refreshment for my soul. Now, God doesn't say this life will be easy. He says in this life you will have what? Tribulations, trials, hardships, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He didn't promise that life itself would be easy, but he said a walk of faith can be easy as you trust me in the hard things of life. And there are many and they're varied and your experience isn't the same as the person sitting next to you. But God is the same He doesn't change at all. His capacity for making your load light and making your path straight is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the kind of God that we have. And so he leads us and he led the nation with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So now how does God lead his sheep? And I'm not going to get into this as much either because we touched on this way more extensively when we went through he leads me beside the still waters, but just briefly, he leads his sheep through his word, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and through human influences in our lives. And we brought out examples of that when we went through that in the lesson on Psalm 23 2b about how he leads us beside the still waters. But then the other thing we brought out that I'll remind you of this morning is God doesn't force you to follow. There's an aspect of positive volitional response in being led. You have to choose to say, I will accept that you know where you're going, that you know the way that you can direct in a way that I wouldn't. I'm going to trust you enough to then follow you. But that involves a decision to be made. God doesn't make us live life the way he intended or he would want for us. He says, This is it. I'll give you everything you need to live the life that I have planned for you. And I'll give you everything you need in the sense that I'll do it all for you if you will just trust me. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on me. Have a walk of faith where you're being directed by a dependence on me to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. As your eyes are focused on me, I've already equipped you with my spirit and empowered you by my spirit. My spirit can now work in and through you to direct you. And And direct your life to be the life that I had planned. I don't, I need you to get out of the way. That's the positive volitional response. So many people think that I have to have a part in this. And you know, many people think that that's true in terms of how can I be saved from the penalty of my sin? You see, many people grew up hearing that they were sinful and that God had to send his son Jesus to die on a cross for sinners to pay for sin. Many people heard that. Many people had a big cross up at the front of the church. Some of them, some of those crosses had Jesus hanging on them. And so many of those people, if you generically ask them, are you a sinner? They'd say yes. Why did Jesus come? He came to die for sin, die for sinners. Do you believe in Jesus? Many of them would say yes. Yes. That's not the issue with them. For most people, that's not the issue. The issue is, do you believe completely in Jesus? In a sense that, do you believe that Jesus and his work on your behalf was all that was necessary to satisfy the sin debt or the penalty that you owed? Do you believe that faith alone in what he's already done for you was adequate? That that was sufficient? That his sacrifice fully atoned for your sin? Fully propitiated or paid for your sin, satisfied the debt that you owed? Do you believe that? Or is a part of your faith putting your confidence in yourself to do something for God to bring this thing to completion, bring your salvation across the finish line, add or contribute your part to what Jesus has done? You know, I was on a horseback riding excursion in Montana, and the guide of that excursion came alongside me at some point in time. He chatted up the various people in the the ride, but he came alongside me. He asked me, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm a pastor. I said, are you a man of faith? And I'll tell you what, that's the best question you could ever ask anybody if you want to have a conversation of faith, about faith, is just be direct. Ask them, are you a man of faith? They say anything. I'm talking literally anything about Anything to do with the world around us. Naturally, when they say whatever that comment might be, this is a good truck. This is a terrible day. That's a terrible politician. This is a terrible coffee that I'm drinking right now. My wife is being—I'll uh, stop there. <laughs> my 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 kids are being—you know—my boss is a real. This is just normal. Comment. The twins are really lousy. Whatever it is, you can that's always expressing what? Any of those comments are expressing a human perspective or a human viewpoint, right? And so if you're having conversations with people, and I'd encourage you to do this, when they express some sort of a commentary that's coming from a place of human perspective, you have the opportunity to insert some divine perspective. And this is how I try to do it. I'm, I'm still developing myself. But in those conversations, somebody says, let's just say, it's so frustrating to watch the Vikings, you know. They blew it again, right? That doesn't happen, right? No, that does happen, okay. And so you get an opportunity when they say that comment to say, yeah, I saw that in the news. But as a man of faith, I don't let those things get to me like I once did because I see that although it's entertainment, entertainment, and it's temporary entertainment, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. So now I've spoken what? A little bit of divine truth. Not a lot. It hasn't even been very confrontational. I haven't rubbed Jesus in their face yet. The next question is, do you consider yourself to be a person of faith or a man of faith? I just got done saying, as a man of faith, my perspective is slightly different than yours about this thing the weather, the politics, the, mo- the boss, the, wo- the family, whatever, right? could be anything. Now, are you, do you consider yourself to be a man of faith? You know what? You're already knee-deep now into an opportunity to carry that conversation down the track to the point of a conversation about, have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? So I'm not saying that's the only way. I'm just saying sometimes people tell me I don't have any opportunities to share Jesus, with people, and part of that is that we lack boldness that 's something that I struggle with that 's something that everybody struggles to a different extents with but sometimes you have the willingness and the boldness you just lack the approach or you, you lack the finesse to get those conversations going there 's just one there 's just one example there of that, but god doesn 't force you to put your trust in his solution or his provision for you. So that started with his provision to deal with your sinfulness where he sent his only son to die in your place as an innocent had to take the place of the guilty otherwise what would have had to happen the guilty would have had to be punished. The guilty would have had to pay the consequences or the debt associated with their choices. So if every single person on the planet is born in sin born with a tendency towards sin a sin nature born associated with a race of sinners, and every one of them chooses sin, chooses to do what is wrong in terms of God's righteous standards, and makes choices to do that, then each one becomes guilty before a perfectly holy God. God says, I'm perfect. Any amount of sin violates my righteous character. So if you choose sin, now you're identified with unrighteousness. We could put a, a negative R next to that. Negative righteousness. And God says that the wage of that sin or the problem with that sin is that it separates. Sin separates from God because God is holy and righteous. So if that's the case and sin is separating from God and every person is a sinner, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have become unprofitable. All have have turned away from God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So if that's the case, everybody's in a real predicament. Because if everyone's associated with sin and God is holy and righteous, then how could God ever have any relationship with sin if sin separates from God because God is holy? And if God can't be tainted by sin, then he can't be near sin. And if you're identified with sin and he's identified with holiness and righteousness, something had to be done. And, and we know, I, I hope you know, that God bridged that gap by sending his son to take the place of the guilty. Because if sin condemns and we're all sinners, and if the problem or the, the ultimate outcome of being a sinner is to have to be forever separated from God, then we were facing an eternity that was apart from him. And the place where God isn't is the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. So, God in his love, he said, I don't want you To have to pay the debt that's owed for your own sin, because the outcome of that would be to be forever separated from me. Instead, I'm going to send a substitute who is going to die in your place so that you don't have to die, but you can instead live if you would accept the death offering, the grace offering of Jesus on your behalf. But I'm not going to make you put your confidence in Jesus' substitutionary death on your behalf. You're going to have to choose that. You're going to have to have a positive volitional response to my provision to meet your sinfulness. And so each man is faced with that choice because Jesus said, I came that with a desire that all would be saved. I came to seek and to save those who were lost. I'm not willing that any would perish. But he's also not going to force people to Except what his son did for them. So we have all these pictures and symbols throughout the Old Testament of how an innocent would have to take the place of the guilty. How an innocent would have to shed its blood and die in the place of the guilty. How an innocent would have to die. How the blood would have to be applied to the account. Applied to the doorposts. How without the shedding of blood there would be no remission of sins. All of these symbols, all of these pictures. How God would have to make a way. Think of Noah in his day. And how there was not any goodness that was going on on the earth. Men did evil continuously. Every thought of their mind was evil, the Bible says. And so God said, I'm going to, there's going to be a consequence associated with that. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be eternal, permanent separation from me. But he said, even in the face of destruction, because I'm such a loving and gracious God, I'm going to make a way of escape. And so he had Moses build a boat in the desert. For a 100 years, Moses worked on building the boat and preaching about the destruction that was to come. And he preached about the solution to that destruction, which was found in the provision of a way of escape that God had provided. He knew there was only one door on that ark. And Noah didn't open the door or close the door. Well, I'm not sure about opening. He maybe built it open. But one door, there's one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. So there's all this symbolism where men was given, mankind was given a chance to be rescued from the predicament they were in, the destruction that they faced. But what did it take? It took putting faith in God's provision for rescue. And did men do that? Eight of them, eight people did, and then God closed the door. He said there is no other way to be rescued, and everyone else perished. God in our day he has said that I have sent my son as the only provision to rescue you from the destruction that you're facing. Will you accept that? Will you put your confidence in finished work, my death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf? So that's why we have on the wall here, for God loved the world so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. How do you get in on this? You have to believe and accept, make a personal decision to accept God's provision to meet your predicament or your sinfulness. Now, that's exactly the same as what we're talking about here with God leading us. He doesn't force us to lead him. He doesn't force you to follow his direction for your life. You choose to acknowledge him or you ignore him. You choose to include him in your life or you exclude him. This now we're talking about God's children. There's a point in time where everyone has to make a decision. Am I going to put my faith in Christ's finished work on my behalf? Am I going to trust in that exclusively to save me? That's a first choice to make to be freed from the penalty of sin that you're facing. But then there's the, the power of sin where sin still wants to rule in the life of a child of God, even though that person has now, through faith, been born into God's family. That person is now a lamb in his sheepfold. That person now has him as his shepherd. That person, though, still faces choices every day. Am I going to follow the leading of the shepherd, or am I going to do my own thing? Am I going to lean on my own understanding? Am I going to walk in the paths that seem right to me? And those choices have to be made. God doesn't make us, though, follow the good shepherd. But we're going to see that the way that the shepherd leads is always the best way. It's always the right way. It's always the most beneficial way. It's always the most direct way to get to the outcome that God has designed for us. And so God doesn't force us to do that. Now, we come to me. He leads me. We've talked about this at length. This is just another reference to this personal, intimate, relational view of God that David has. Personal faith, it focuses on God's provision for you individually. And we've seen that throughout the Psalms so far, and I've already covered them, so I'm not going to do it again, but just look for the words me and my and how often you're seeing that already up to this point. Well, it doesn't take much time. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down. I shall not want, another personal pronoun. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. See, Christianity can't be lived vicariously through others. If you want to have a walk of faith, it involves you making decisions to respond to God and his leading and his directing in your life. It's personal, relational, intimate walk with the Lord. Nobody else can do it for you. And that's, it's beautiful to see that it's not just about God's concern and compassion and direction for others. It's about his concern and his compassion and his direction for me. And I hope you're seeing that as we've been going through this psalm. Now where does he lead me? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Where is God leading his sheep? Well, there's an intended outcome or destination in mind. If you're going to literally translate this, it might say, he leads me in the right paths. That's what that word means. He leads me in the right paths. So there is such a thing as right and wrong. Don't be conned by the world around us that continuously seeks to erode the biblical standards of even what is right and wrong. Many people have an opinion about what is right and wrong. That cannot be our guide. Because those people are flawed, just as we are flawed. There is no person who has got it right all of the time. So the only way anyone ever has it right is, is if their viewpoint of what is right is being informed by the word of truth, God's word. And so God lays out his standards of what is right, and he lays out standards of what is wrong, and he says they're absolute. They're not subject to your own personal whims or interpretation. This phrase that drives me bananas is you do you. That's supposedly a statement of tolerance. And I'll tell you what, you can be compassionate, you can be loving, but you don't have to tolerate or accept what is clearly identified as wrong in God's word. Now, the way you go about handling your convictions that are informed from God's word is important. It's, it's very important. It is important that you would focus first and foremost on your own, Bobber. That is true. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to use you in the lives of others. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to use you as an ambassador for him, to proclaim him. Now that starts with a focus on proclaiming who is Jesus Christ and what has he done for a lost and dying world? But after that, who is Jesus and what has he done? It can morph beyond that to, and what does God say is true? What is God's direction for our lives? What is God's plan? What is his purpose? How does this story end? God may want to use you to spread that truth. But don't buy into this idea that there is no truth or that every man makes up his own truth. God is the only one who determines what is true. And I I should say the only accurate one or the only one who's actually entitled to do that because he's the ultimate author of truth. He's ultimately the author of truth. So You Do You has this idea of nobody can make any judgments or nobody can have any sense that there's right and wrong. And the Bible lays out what's right and wrong. And so don't don't go for that. That is the world that we live in though where it's progressing further and further in that direction. It's ironic that no matter who you're talking to about you make up your own truth, no matter how passionate they are about that view, you can in, there there's no exceptions that I've come across where you can't in cross examining them. You couldn't come across some standard or or behavior that would be inflicted towards them that, would be, that, that they wouldn't see as wrong. And then you'd ask them, well, you don't see any of this other stuff as wrong, but you've come to, you have a very strong opinion that what I just suggested, if someone were to do that to you, that would be wrong. Or if someone were to do that to your loved one, that would be wrong. How did you think you came up with that? How, how can you be so absolute about that, but nothing else? You see, the Bible gives us a long list of the things that are right and wrong. Why So we wouldn't be bounced all around. We wouldn't be blown around by every wind of doctrine that's speaking to false teaching, but we wouldn't be blown about false Christian teaching, but we wouldn't be blown about by everything that the world says is right and wrong either. We could find our standard in God's word. I need to move on. He leads me in the right paths. Now there's three possible aspects to this which together paint a more complete picture of, of what we're talking about here with the paths of righteousness. Now the first one is this. Right as in righteous. So he leads me in the right paths. The paths that are righteous. So paths that are right with him is more the idea that we're talking about. So the literal translation is he leads me in the right paths. What does that mean? Paths that are right with him are consistent with his standards. God is the definition of what is right. And any direction he provides is also perfectly right. And I have there, it has to be. If God is perfectly righteous, nothing about him is in error. Nothing about him is crooked. Everything about him is perfectly straight. And so in that sense, righteous is as consistent with his standards. He leads me in ways that are consistent with his character and his standards. And so we have a verse here in Psalm eighteen thirty. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. The word of the Lord, the way of the Lord, is perfect. And then where do we see the way of the Lord? Through the word of the Lord, which is proven, and we'll get to that in a second. But his way is perfect. So in that sense, we're talking about a perfect path that is consistent with God's standards or God's character or God's revealed truth. Truth about what is right and truth about what is not right. Psalm 144 145:17 says the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. That's his character. So if he's leading, then the only way he's going to lead is in ways that are consistent with his character and his standards and his word. And when we think about this a little bit more, right as in righteous, doing what is right is only possible due to his leading and provision. The reason we could ever be led in a path that is right is because he's the one who knows what is right. He's the one who can direct us into a place that is right. Following God in paths that are righteous is a byproduct of intimate fellowship with God. It's it's a byproduct of intimate fellowship with him. Uh, It's a byproduct of a life of faith. See, faith leads to trusting God. And then as we're convinced to trust God, it leads to following God or being led by God. Following God leads to right living. But you can't mix up that order. You're not going to walk in paths that are righteous because you've set out your mind or you've set your mind to doing that. The reason you're going to do that is because you've been convinced that God is good, that God is right, that God is worth trusting. As you respond in faith to him, you're going to allow him to lead. As he leads, he's going to lead you to a manner of living produced through his spirit working in you that is consistent with his standard of what is righteous. I hope you see that. You can't mix that up. That's the only way that right living or righteousness is ever going to be produced in your life. Now the second thing is, Right, right as in safe. So if we're talking about he leads me in paths that are right or right paths, part of this has a sense of a path that is safe. Right as in safe. A good shepherd knows the right paths on which to bring the sheep home safely. The focus of this whole section is not on the sheep doing anything for themselves, but on the shepherd's provision for their every need. So a good shepherd knows the right paths on which to bring the sheep home safely safely. He doesn't direct them or lead them into danger. He leads them to places of safety. The Hebrew word for leads is commonly used in situations of leading one safely through snares and triumphantly to a desired and promised destination. The idea here is the shepherd leads his sheep on the paths of safety, avoiding dangerous places, and paths leading to places of abundant refreshment safety and rest, which is what has come before here in terms of green pastures and besides still waters and restoring my soul. So think about this for a second. The good shepherd is never leading his sheep in places that are dangerous. He's avoiding dangerous places. So when you find yourselves in places that are not conducive to spiritually thriving or spiritual success, do you think the Lord is the one who led you there? Not usually. He's not interested in that. Now, he does call us to be in the world, even though we're not of the world. He does say that we're living as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. So in that sense, does he allow us or lead us into danger no matter where we go in the world? Yes. But so many people find themselves in places they never should have been. They've convinced themselves that somehow the Lord was leading them there, and God isn't in the business of taking us to those places. Places that are incompatible with his will. Places that are clearly out of alignment with his revealed plan for our lives. Lots of examples of this. I'm not going to go into specifics. I'm not going to step on toes, but there's plenty of places that you've found yourself that if you were being honest, you'd say there's no way that the Lord possibly led me here because this isn't a safe space. This isn't a place that would, is likely to contribute to my spiritual well-being. Well, Once you've recognized that, allow him to lead you somewhere else that is the safe place, a place of refreshment, a place that is safe, and a place that can provide rest. Now, the third possibility here, or part of this, I think all three of them play into this, is right as in direct or straight or not crooked. So he leads me in the not crooked paths. He leads me in straight paths, direct paths. And the idea is straight paths or paths that bring the sheep most directly to their destination. You see, sheep naturally take meandering, habit-driven and destructive paths. Now think about your own life, the kind of paths that you follow. Isn't it true that they're, they're, they're prone to be meandering They don't go directly to where they should have been all along. They're habit-driven, meaning I go through a certain routine every day. Think of the path of your day. Doesn't it become routine-driven? Who came up with that routine? Usually not the Lord. Not to say it's impossible that he, some people have a routine that Perhaps the Lord was greatly involved in a a way of going through a day that contributes most beneficially to them thriving in their faith. But most of our routines are just a byproduct of us doing whatever comes naturally or whatever seems to fit in. How about destructive paths? Sheep are known to put themselves in predicaments. Somebody here from church sent me a really funny little meme or video of a sheep that was stuck in a crack and this was a crack running along the ground and it was really narrow and the sheep was stuck in there and there was a little kind of thing coming out of the sheep's you know brain that said something to the effect of if God will just rescue me from this predicament I promise I'll never do this again and so the sh- shepherd comes along and pulls the sheep out of the, out of the crack the sheep sprints Twelve steps or so dives headfirst back into the crack. I laughed at that. That's our natural thing to take destructive paths, and sheep are known for that too. They have no particular awareness or concern for the destination. But you know who has a concern for the destination? Who has a direct has a spot that he's wanting to bring you? He's God has a direct has a concern for the destination. He's wanting to bring you to a place where you're conformed into the image of his son. He's not hoping that that takes a long time. He's he knows that nobody will fully arrive at that destination in this life, but yet at the same time he wants to bring you as close to that as possible as quickly as possible. He's not interested in you justifying the delay. He's not interested in you continuously leaning on your own understanding instead of trusting him. God's will for your life is that you would trust him so that he could make changes within you to bring you closer to him so that you could be a reflection of him and you would be effective in your task or your mission which is to be a light bearer for him. You're most effective at doing that when you're willing to trust him, when you're willing to have him lead. Now that doesn't involve meandering. It doesn't have to. Now is God faithful to take us from all of our misguided paths and reorient us, redirect us, recalculate, re, you know, redo the GPS, so to speak? Yeah, he is. And he'll continue to do that. But just because he does, do we have to say, do we have to justify or convince ourselves that it's okay to make this detour, which we know will not benefit us, but our flesh is just screaming out, but I want to stop over here for a day or two, and then I'll get back on track. Does your flesh do that? It's just a little detour. It's basically right on the way. Is it, though? Is it right on the way? I call it the pricker path. You know, you look out there, and you're on the green path. You're on the path that the Lord is leading, but you see another path. It looks green. You're barefoot. Just enjoying the cool grass on your feet. So you take that path. It's not God's path, but it looks attractive. But it's full of prickers. I keep telling you about the pricker path because how many of us get onto the pricker paths? They look green. They look good, but they're full of prickers. Poking into the bottom of your feet. Can you feel that right now? Can you feel that in your life right now? Poking right into the bottom of your feet. What are the choices? What are the options there? Just keep going down the pricker path? Or recognize I got thorns poking into the bottom of my feet. I should go back to the path I was on that God was leading me on, which didn't have any of that. In any event, those are are ultimately the choices. The shepherd is trying to direct us Into straight and direct paths. A good shepherd must thoughtfully direct the sheep to move to places and objectives that will provide the greatest benefit to them. And as I think about this, it's the shepherd that's qualified to direct his sheep to the most beneficial places possible because he alone knows where they are. You can't direct your own steps in your own life because you don't even know where the most beneficial places are. Very often, God is going to direct you to places you never would have dreamed of. His straight path for you is often to places that are uncomfortable, unknown, unfamiliar. Places that you wouldn't naturally even want to go. But for you, in your life, which is different from my life, that's the direct path that God has for you. But only the shepherd knows where that path is. The path that's going to be direct and straight and most beneficial to you. The path that's not going to be crooked to you. And your path isn't necessarily going to look exactly like my path. But if you're trusting the Lord, it's going to be straight. It's going to be direct. It's going to lead to the desired outcome as quickly as possible. This life of intimacy spent with him under his direction and his leading as he wants to grow and mature you in your faith. So the specific places he leads are secondary to you having been led there by him and traveled there with him. The objective is ultimately a life lived in complete dependence on him, but get that. The path is direct, the path is straight, the path isn't crooked, but the focus isn't on where is he leading me, it's I'm being led by him. That's the place that is desirable. I'm being led by him. I don't care where he's leading me. Can you get to that spot? It doesn't matter to me where God is leading. I'm being led by him and that's the best, most beneficial place possible for me. Or as I'm being led, I'm traveling this journey with him. I'm being led by him and I'm traveling this path with him. That is the abundant life, friends. There's nothing more than that. That is the life that we should be seeking that we should be desiring, that God wants for us. So then you say the right paths as opposed to what? As opposed to what? What is what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is the path that God doesn't want you on. And we think about where is God not leading you? He's not leading you in any direction that's contrary to His will, word, plan, or purpose. So, When you're trying to justify the path that you're on, just ask yourself, is this a path that is consistent with God's word, with his will, with his plan, with his purpose for my life? And very often, it doesn't take much honesty to conclude, no, clearly God isn't leading me here. Now let's talk about overt sin. Is God ever going to lead you into a path of overt sin? No, obviously not. That's, that, sh- that one should be easy. So as you're trying to stick handle your way through that, and it's okay because I did go to church Sunday morning, so I, I get a pass for a few of these little things that I know are wrong, but we are so self-deceived. There's no place for that. God isn't directing you there. So if you're there and you're just doing an overt, open rebellion to him, Let him make changes in your thinking. I've been there. I can relate to that. But that doesn't mean God wants that for us. Probably everyone here in some measure can relate to that. And God is saying, child, this isn't my plan for your life. Let me make some changes. Don't dwell on the past. Don't wallow in the past. There's a path forward now that I have for you that is being led by me. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go forward. Come on. Let's go. Let's, let's leave that behind and let's go forward. I got a path for you, son. And so, no, it's never going to be overt sin. It's also never going to be something that is being directed by yourself or something that's been being empowered by your human effort or by your human endeavors. It's always going to be a path that is directed by Him and empowered by Him and provided in terms of every provision, provision being made by Him. It's not going to be a path that, the right path is not a path that is in any way inconsistent with his character. It's not going to be a path that is in, in any way evil or sinful. And here's, here's one verse about that. Let no one say, James 1.13, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. With what? With evil. That's not God when, it, when we're talking about sinfulness. That's not God that's leading. But it's also never God that's leading us in paths that seem good or look good on the outside but aren't ultimately directed by his spirit. Now, why does God care what path you take? Why does God care what path you take? Because the right paths delight him and bring about blessing in your life. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Meaning anything good in your life, if, if you're going to be described as doing what is good, it's because it's being ordered by the Lord. It's because your steps are being directed by the Lord. Now, and he, capital H there, he delights in his way, meaning the, the steps of the one that's allowing God to lead in his life. So it brings God glory. It delights God. He delights in his way. Now, some translations have that he as a lowercase he, meaning that the good man whose steps are being directed by the Lord are delights in his, and that's a capital H, then God's way. Now that's also true. But this is how New King James Version has this. He, God delights in his way, the way of the man that is willing to trust him in that moment. Now how do you know that God has my good in mind? See, it's, it's not only that it delights him, it brings about blessing in your life. That's why God cares what paths you take. Well, because God is good. So Psalm 100, verse 5 says, the Lord is good. It's his very character. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. So if God is good by virtue of his very character, then you can say this, Psalm 84, 11 through 12, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from, now how is this person described, those who walk uprightly. That's the same thing as saying, those who walk right. That's the same thing as saying, he leads me in the paths that are right. The one who is following God in the paths that are right is not going to have any good thing withheld from him. Now, the focus there is on spiritual things. Why? Because God is good. So if God is good, he's not going to withhold good things from the one who is walking right as being led by him. That's the only way to. Walk white. Right. right. So blessed is the man who trusts in you. It's a blessing to you to trust God. To follow God is to trust him. What a fun verse that is. Now, how do you identify the right path? So if there, he leads me in the paths that are right, how do you identify the right path? Well, God directs, teaches, and leads. We have Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 here. Most of you are very familiar with it, so we'll move quickly through it. Trust in the Lord. That's the, that's the key. Will you trust Him? If you trust Him, then you'll follow Him. Let me say that again. If you will trust him, then you will follow him. If you're not following him, it's because you're not presently trusting him. If you trust him, you know that he knows best. He knows better than you do. He knows better than the world does. If he knows best and you're trusting him, then there's no other conclusion other than I'm going to follow you. But I would never follow him if I don't first trust him. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? It means that at the same time, I'm not leaning on my own understanding or trusting myself. In all your ways, acknowledge him and then what? He shall direct your path. So how do you identify the right path? You trust him. As I trust him, he directs me in the right path. I don't really need to identify the right path at all so much as I need to trust him. As I trust him, he directs me to the right path. Now, the other way that I identify the right path is primarily by reading, being taught, and knowing the word of God. And here's some verses about that. Psalm one, nineteen, nine through 11 says, how can a young man cleanse his way? Now, that's very similar to have his path be right, have his way of living be right. How? How? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Another reference to his word. Now, your word I have hidden in my heart with what outcome in mind? That I might not sin against you. That's what the right path is, not sinning against him. Because he's directing me in a path that's right. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a what? A light to my path. How do I identify the right path? God does it through for me, primarily through his word as I'm trusting him. He works through his spirit inside of me to direct my path. As I read his word, he illuminates my thinking so that his path for my life is revealed to me so that I can then follow him as he directs and undertakes. Now the question is, is it possible to be mistaken at times when you're trying to identify the right path? Is it possible to be mistaken at times? And the answer is, Yes, we're not going to dwell on this verse either, but Proverbs fourteen twelve says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Note it says that it seems right, but yet it's still wrong. Now, obviously the path that seems wrong is also wrong. Okay? So the path that seems wrong is wrong. But sometimes the path that seems right is also wrong. It's not the right path. Now what makes its end death? The end of that path that seemed right at the time, its death, what makes its end death? What makes its end death is that that path leads away from him. It seemed right to you, but if it was led by him, it would be in union with him, in fellowship with him, in intimacy with him, in dependence on him. So it seemed right, but you weren't doing it with him, which led you away from him in a sense. Now, that's how the end of that path is death. Now, it can refer to, obviously, there's a path in a justification sense that leads to an eternal destruction apart from him on a permanent, what we'll call, positional basis, but it's also true in a practical way, and I believe that's the focus here. Practically speaking, there's ways that we get onto that seem right, that aren't right, and they lead to death because they're paths that don't include him. So when I'm not living life with him, then I'm experiencing the equivalent of practical death in that moment because the life, the source of life is found in him. So what's the solution? Well, be sensitive to him. Recognize, admit, and acknowledge your error when you get into a place where it seemed right, but you end up being mistaken. Now, for his name's sake, he leads me in the paths that are right or the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This will be brief. In accordance with his revealed character, for the sake of his reputation, or as befits his name is what this means. So for his name's sake, (coughs) in accordance with his revealed character. So he's never going to lead me on paths that aren't consistent with his revealed character. He leads me in paths that are straight or right for the sake of his reputation. He has a reputation of being perfect. He's not going to lead me in an imperfect path or he wouldn't have a reputation for being perfect or as befits his name, meaning it's consistent with who he is. So if we restated this, he leads me along right paths because he is that kind of God. I like, I like that. God has revealed himself as perfect, gracious, loving, faithful, kind, generous, good, holy, and righteous. His name or reputation is consistent with those qualities, and as such, he guides his children accordingly. He leads me along right paths because he is that kind of God. You see, a professional guide would have no employment apart from a good name or reputation of successfully in the past having safely led past travelers. So how, how could he be a guide? How could somebody be a guide that others would look up to? Because they have a reputation for successfully leading others. Would you ever hire a guide to take you into the Boundary Waters who consistently was in the newspaper for leaving his people behind or having people be harmed or having people drowned on his watch? Would that guide, if that person had that reputation, would that Boundary Waters guide get a lot of canoe campers to hire him to take them into the wilderness? I hope not. I hope not. We're so ignorant in some ways as a society. Maybe we would. I hope not. But the kind of guide that we have is perfect. He never leads us astray. Same ideas here in Psalm 106.8. Nevertheless, he saved them. Why did God save them? A reference to the nation of Israel. He saved them for his namesake because that's the kind of God he is. That he might make his mighty power known. He wants people to know of his goodness. He wants them to know of his character. So man naturally seeks a direction for his own life. Sometimes you hear people say, I need to get my life on the right track. How many of you have thought that before? I need to get my life on the right track. No one. Okay. We have no, there's no ambition in this room. Okay. I need to get my life on the right track. You know, and that's not a bad idea per se, except for it ignores the fact that ultimately, God alone is the one who can direct your life to the right path. God is the one who can get your life on the right path. The greater question should be, will you learn to trust him completely? See, God's ultimate objective is that you would depend on him. A byproduct of that is following him wherever he leads. Where he leads is guaranteed to be the right path for you. Let's say that again. Where he leads is guaranteed to be the right path path for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the time we could spend in it. Thank you that you're such a good God that wants to give us direction for our lives. Not just any direction, but right direction. Paths that are right. Paths that are straight. Paths that are not crooked. Paths that are safe. Paths that are righteous and consistent with your righteous character. Pray that we would see that we'll never get on a path like that on our own. We'll never stay on it on our own, but we need to be walking always mindfully in dependence on you, saying, Lord, I need you, and without you, I lose my way. In Jesus' name, amen.